All right, welcome back to another episode of Acquisitions Anonymous, the internet's number one podcast where we review small businesses for sale, uh, usually south of $20 million, and we talk about whether we would buy them or whether we would not. Uh, Usually, we have a guest from uh, the sector for the deals we're talking about, but today you get just the three of us, myself, Bill D'Alessandro, and my two co-hosts, Mill Snell and Michael Girdley. The theme of today's episode is Transaction Adjacent Real Estate Services, uh, which is the sexy name we came up with for a real estate appraisal business and a home staging business. Uh, so we figured, hey, we could buy both of these, call it real estate or transaction adjacent real estate services and raise it five times revenue. <laughs> uh, so we're, <laughs> we're going to talk about all, this, all the services adjacent to a real estate transaction. You've already received three term sheets since we started recording. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> it's called branding. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, this one, the branding guy. <laughs> all right. But first, uh, thank you to our gracious sponsor. I'll throw it over to Michael to introduce Yeah. Him. So uh, one sponsor today. We have tinyacquisitions.com. They are our longest running sponsor, by the way. So thank, thank you to those guys. Tiny Acquisitions is a site where you can go online. Um, that is a place where you can go acquire very small, tiny project-based businesses that are typically $5,000 or less. And basically, they're typically tech that's already built or a product that's already built that needs to be taken to market and, and grown. So really good for somebody that's looking for a side hustle, uh, looking to run their marketing chops and that sort of thing. And I see on their website here, they just got um, the number three product of the day on Product Hunt. So that's that's a real deal to, to get up there on that site. So thanks for Tiny Acquisitions on our, our never-ending quest to make this podcast break even. Um, so thanks to them. And uh, back over to you, Bill. All right. Cool. Thank you, Michael. So Tiny Acquisitions has not only the distinction of being our longest running sponsor, but our only sponsor for today. <laughs> uh, so double thank you to Tiny Acquisitions. You get two for one today. So uh, we're going to get right into it. So our first deal is going to be, which one do we decide? Mills or, or Girdley? Yep. Who's going first? Yep, I'll take Mills. it. I'll take it. So this is a, uh, a real estate appraiser firm in the Southeast, and it kind of caught my eye. I like to at least just take a look at anything that's Southeast based that, you know, based on the descriptor, you know, piques my interest. And this was one, I, th- I think these businesses are kind of interesting and, but also, also tricky. So uh, we've got a teaser on it. It's a Southeast based real estate appraiser founded in the year 2000. Their ownership is supported by 13 full-time appraisal professionals. Management indicates that the current personnel can facilitate, facilitate the planned growth uh, revenues generated from the company's appraisals, which account for 100% of the revenues for 2020. They've been focused on convenience and gas properties historically, but they currently are expanding and they are specializing in service offerings to branded fast food and quick service restaurants, QSRs. The company offers excellent service quality to clients and is focused on a highly specialized market, which drives word of mouth referrals and repeat business from customers. The primary means for expanding its customer base is direct marketing to prospective clients and promotion via trade shows and industry-related group activities. They are doing, in 2020, they did $1.4 million in revenue and $230,000 in EBITDA. In 2021, they're projecting, and I don't exactly remember when I pulled this, but they're projecting $2 million in revenue and $632,000 in EBITDA. So it looks like they're, you know, we don't have full financials on this, uh, or at least that I can talk about, but it looks like their overhead, their fixed cost is somewhat, is somewhat truly fixed, right? And, and there's not a lot of variable costs because a lot of that revenue increase fell to the bottom line. 
they are uh, primarily like 98% of their customers are banks, right? So if you're buying a piece of property, you have to get an appraisal done. And uh, it's a it's a somewhat regulated process. The bank puts it out to bid and the appraisers uh, can respond with a price and a time frame. Like I'll charge you 500 bucks, but I'm going to do it in a month or I'm going to charge you a thousand dollars and I'll do it next week is typically the way it works. Then they show us their geographical breakdown in 2020. About 25% of it's based in Georgia, 7% in South Carolina, 9% in North Carolina, 8% in Virginia, and 51% in other states. So I think it sounds like most of this is is their niche driven. So if they've made their made their way focusing on gas store gas stations and convenience stores, I, I really like that as a as a differentiator. EBITDA margin has fluctuated from 2018 to 2021, but uh, they're they're certainly top ticking right now. 2021 is 31% EBITDA margins, and two years ago it was 6.9%. So you'd really want to dig in and figure out what that variability is about. Two owners, 13 appraisers. It says that they're not very dependent on current ownership. Um, not sure if most of the appraisers are remote or independent contractors or all sitting in the same office, but I would have a lot of questions about that. Strong client relationships, a lot, like 90% rate of repeat business. Top five clients have been working with the company for a minimum of 13 years, 13 to 20 years. They say that it's easy to replicate, standardized growth formula. They have opportunities to scale and that they have an efficient reach. Their operations are easily carried out from the company's headquarters Key personnel occasionally travel to client locations, but the company primarily manages all client interaction from afar, resulting in more efficient operations. What do you guys think? Wow, does this not suck? (laughs) This is pretty cool. (laughs) People people think that we hate every deal. And what they, I think, hopefully realize is that the more deals you look at, the pickier you get. So there is a level of... um, regulatory barriers to entry on this. So you do have to go through in most states, a licensing process to become a a real estate appraiser. And then uh, my buddy just went through it. So he did like a whole year of classes and now he's like an apprentice working for another real estate appraiser. So I think like some of the other stuff we've looked at, like the RIAs and the dentist offices and stuff, you know, you're going to have to go through some of that. Um, Though it's not that hard. It's not like trying to become a lawyer or something. It takes five years. It seems to take about a year, a year and a half to get you there. But there is regulatory barriers to being in this business, I think. Yeah, it looks like a really, one of the most pure fixed cost businesses, at least from the numbers that we've seen in a while. Because if you look at their, they're projecting to go from 1.4 million to 2 million in revenue. So 600K of incremental sales is going to lead to almost exactly 400K of incremental EBITDA. And that is a hell of a flow-through margin on incremental revenue. Uh, and that's what takes their EBITDA margin from 16% to almost 32%, you know, kind of overnight. Um, so it could be that, you know, I'd ask, I'd ask questions about, you know, we don't have the 2019, 2018 revenue numbers, but, you know, this could be they've got kind of a network of licensed real estate appraisers, you know, in each of the states, as per the pie chart that's on the screen right now. And they just kind of farm them out work, pay them a fixed fee and charge whatever they can to the bank. I imagine, gotta imagine those client relationships are really sticky. It says here, the top five clients have been working with the company for a minimum of 13 years to a high of 20 years. Like once you get in with a bank, I mean, like, can you imagine like somebody who's more just like stamping it out on a daily basis than a commercial banker? <laughs> like just call my gas station appraiser guy. Like I really don't think he's shopping for like the best rate on appraiser. So this is like, 
service business, like as long as you are clearing the bar and making them happy and sending them a gift basket at Christmas, this feels like it could be pretty sticky business. So there is, the way I understand this works from the banking side, there's been regulatory things that have shifted with regards to how appraisers work. So if you remember back to the the um, savings and loan scandals of the 80s when people would would do fake appraisals and that kind of stuff. And then again, when in the 2008 real estate crash, you would have, you had problems around that too. So regulatory wise, and I'm not an expert on this, it has become much more difficult for a bank just to call their guy. So like when I go now for a real estate loan, especially for owner occupied or specialty property, which it appears what this is, they will put it out to bid. And there's a pool of like four or five that will bid an individual job or they'll say, I'm too busy. And they will tell you, okay, here's how much it's going to cost to get it appraised for the loan. And then secondarily, they'll tell you, this is how long it's going to take. So you might choose the one that's $2,500, but takes three weeks over the one that's $2,100 and takes seven weeks. So those are two things that comes back. So you know, I think what these guys appear to have is, and I'm not an expert in this space, just see it on the other side, the guys appear to have relationships where they've gotten on the lists, the preferred list for these five banks. And then I think it's super cool that they are not general real estate appraisers. So they're not competing with all the other ones. They're just like, okay, this, these are the only things we do. And that I think puts you in a much less competitive you know, position than if you were just a generic one doing apartment buildings or mini storage or something like that. In this case, less competitive being good. That's good. Because you yeah. don't have to slug it out with a ton of That's good. That means your high bids are sometimes going to be accepted, which is, which is the goal of a business like this. Especially, right, when you think about it from the bank's perspective, from a credit and underwriting view, like, you know, hey, we don't just want the guy who does multifamily housing to, you know, put a number on this, you know, this convenience store and gas station. We want the guy who's the expert because... We want to make sure that we've got we're we're correctly collateralized on this thing. So yeah, my that's a great my point. guess is businesses like this often transact the way engineering firms do, which is they sell or to general contractors, right? They sell to insiders or staff members come in and do a, a management buyout of some sort. That'd be one of the things I'd want to look at on this, which is why why out of thirteen appraisers, none of those folks are interested in what seems like a pretty good business. Um, what, what don't we know? Cause there's something about this. that's like, wait a second, none of these 13 people are interested and it's SBA qualified and you know, the owners really well, and you know, the business really well, like something doesn't smell right about that aspect of it. I'd want to understand why that my guess is point. that it has something to do with the sellers wanting a multiple of 2021 EBITDA. Oh, oh well, that's, <laughs> you know, I mean, if, if you had to guess, right. I mean, that's going to, I would be willing to bet that, you know, this particular broker told these guys, Hey, look, yeah, I mean, somebody will pay you a multiple of, you know, last 12 months or maybe an average of the last two years. And the insiders are like, well, we could just go start our own and compete. Like, why would we pay you a bunch of money when we could just compete, you know, and, and establish our own, uh, banner. So the tricky thing to me about this is how do you make sure that all of the value doesn't walk out of the door? It'd be like a law firm, right? Buying a law firm. It's all non-transferable goodwill. And so, you know, you got to make sure, right, that those people are going to stay. And if you try and walk in there, you know, in due diligence and say, hey, everybody's getting non-competes, everybody's getting these, you know, uh, handcuffs, so to speak, even if even if they feel like golden handcuffs. I think you scare people away and it's really difficult to keep that revenue going. Yeah. Have you guys ever seen a successful model where someone comes in and buys a business like this and takes these 13 appraisers and kind of gives them a small chunk of equity or, or ties them up in a way that it's like a half management buyout 
but led by the financial, the new financial buyer. Have you ever seen a structure like that work? Only on much larger transactions than this. Yeah, because even if you gave them, you know, three percent, it's just that's not a lot of money that they could still walk from. Yeah, but the other way I've seen it work is like a subset of those folks who are like the leaders will do the buyout. So it's not everybody or like, or like you pick the two or three and you make them partners because they have more of an owner's mindset than the folks who are generally just happy being employees. Right. So I've seen that happen both on, you know, general contracting businesses and then also like on specialty, specialty engineering firms as well. Or like architecture, right. Environmental services. It's where you have a person, right. Who's highly compensated who has some level of credentials and, you know, expertise, uh, law firms, again, same, same kind of thing. It's all professional services that at the end of the day, you've got to thread that line. And as a sponsor, right, if you were going to try and sponsor a deal like this, you're saying, okay, I'm going to take pretty much all the financial risk because this person might be used to making a hundred or $150,000 a year. And they don't want to, they don't want to take a discount from that in order to like squirrel away money for the buyout or, or to, you know, pay down a portion of their equity as at best or something. It just seems like you're spreading, you know, you're spreading it too thin. There's not enough to kind of go around with a deal this size. So here, what, here, what you're buying is you're buying the appraisers, you're buying the brand and you're buying some, some industry knowledge and history and then you're buying the relationships with the banks. Is, is there anything else that you're really getting in terms of assets when you buy this business? I think this is a really slow business to grow organically. So just having a jump start is probably worth something. Mm-hmm. You know, if you said, okay, look, I've got half a million dollars. I want to try and build a competitor to this business. I mean, it's just really hard, I think, in a very, very slow, you know, lead cycle, sales cycle on getting this type of employee because their alternative is I'm just going to work for myself and I'm probably going to make more money, you know? Well, so it'd be hard, it'd be hard to get 10, 10 appraisers, you know, it takes you years, I think to get 10 appraisers. If you do the average, they're paying all in costs for these appraisers a little bit over a hundred on it. Yeah. If you do 1.4 divided by 13. So yeah, you run the risk. And I know individual, I know individual commercial appraisers who are making three or four times that amount. Now they've been at it a long time and they have a reputation and all that stuff, but low overhead, they work when they want to, they take off when they want to, you know, and, and they're, they're making bank. There's one other thing that's a risk embedded here that might not be easy to see at first, which is that your customers here are 98% banks, which means all of your business is driven on refinancings, basically either, either financing, you know, with a sale or refinancing, which means that I want to know what happens to my business when interest rates are rising and no one wants to refinance their convenience store and gas station. And because of commercial real estate, interest rates are rising, it's probably depressing cap rates, or it's, or it's increasing cap rates, and so you're, you're kind of losing value uh, on your commercial real estate. Uh, so I just wonder if that's why they had a great, you know, coming out of 2019, and then they cut, rates got cut in back half of 2020. 2021, rates are super low, everybody's refining their convenience store and gas station. I wonder if that's why they had a great year. Um, you're kind of exposed to the bank financing market here fairly significantly. And if for some reason loan volume dries up, uh, your business is going to dry up too. And it seems like you have a fixed cost business, which is potentially a scary combo, especially if you bought it with debt. Looks like that's what happened in 2019. (laughs) Yep. That's why I would never want to buy, especially with debt, one of these, this residential focus, because you just ride these waves of housing boom and bust 
I would bet that this is somewhat insulated, but you're right. I mean, it, it's not immune, you know, it, it, but it's, it, I don't think it's going to be as volatile as residential. I mean, earlier this year, I, I was hearing from residential real estate brokers and appraisers that, you know, the brokers were having a hard time getting appraisers because they were just booked so far out. There was so much transaction volume. So you just have to make hay while the sun's shining. And then, you know, if you're the owner of this type of thing and you financed it with debt, you've got to prepare for debt service obligations that you may not have the cash flow for later. So one thing, one thing also about this, I think you need to have a thesis on is what's going to happen to convenience stores in the long term, right? There's a, there's a thesis that EVs are going to make nasty. I mean, let's face it, most convenience stores, except for maybe Bucky's and a Love's are pretty horrible to go into. How many of those are going to survive as EVs go from whatever percentage, let's say, you know, we're, we're single digit percentages right now to a third, right, of the of the automobiles in the U.S. Um, and yeah, can can they survive not selling gas? But like, why do you want to go there when GoPuff is going to deliver me my, you know, my Twinkies? <laughs> like, I don't, do I really need to go to the convenience store? And it is interesting. I talked to somebody who was on the board once of a C-store, and this was five or six years ago, a big chain. And uh, I was like, well, you, you, you know, you guys are in trouble long-term because EVs going away. And he said, no, no, we're going to become neighborhood centers. I was like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> see how that works out for you. But I think you need to have a thesis yeah. around that because, you know, as the demand for gas goes down, that means the other stuff they actually make their money on is C-stores, you know, in theory is going to go down too with less people coming to the door. I hear that, but I also think, you know, there's parts of the country where that would absolutely scare me to death. And there's other parts of the country that I think will be 30 years, 40 years, 50 years away from it, you know, for the same reason that Dollar General goes in and, you know, they're the only place you can buy groceries in a lot of, in a lot of areas. But uh, we've had people asking us about this, but I think this, we, we don't always highlight it, but I think this business probably trades for somewhere between 50% and 75% of revenue, like stabilized. I, I highly doubt that you know, it's going to transact, transact off of, you know, the 2021 projections. So let's see, that would be half of revenue. That would be about two and a half times EBITDA. So somewhere between a typical main street, four to five times EBITDA and, and, and a very low typical services business, um, multiple. I think so. I would have guessed two to three times EBITDA for this business too. That being said, seen some silly stuff out there in 2021, (laughs) you know, and it's SBA approved. You know, so there's leverage. Um, I I could see it going for higher, yeah. but I would get nervous paying any multiple 2021 EBITDA or more than kind of three times. So, Bill, you talk about like buyer buyer deal fit. You know, if you're if you're not an, an appraiser and you don't know the business well, or even even this particular niche, would it scare you a bit that some strategic who maybe is the next town over hasn't decided to to buy these guys at whatever multiple you're paying? Or or do you think this is one of those ones that's not one where I should be scared of that? I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, I don't know this, this industry well enough, like whether there are huge conglomerates or if this is something more like notaries, you know, where it's just fragmented like crazy. If it were fragmented like crazy, you know, you don't have to worry about that. So it's something I don't want to learn at learn. This one, I don't know. It's just it doesn't seem super complicated because you it's it's a it's white collar workers, so you probably not have as much turnover, right? The appraisers. They're I'm assuming they gotta be either 1099s or at least pretty autonomous. Like you don't need to manage them that much. You just give them a job and they do it. 
and they take well, they're, they're calling these guys staff. So I don't know if that means they're W two or not, but they're well. Even if they're W two, like my, my point is, it's it's pretty transactional work, job description. Yeah. You know, um, you, you don't have to, it's not like a whole bunch of strategy and like, you know, man, people managing other people and, you know, things like that. It seems like probably close to one layer and it seems like a smart person could come in and learn this. And there's not a lot of like really kind of dirt under the fingernails, industry specific complexity that, you know, like there is in some of the yard maintenance businesses or home services or the stuff that seems easy from the outside and you get into it and you're like, holy smokes. This is way more complicated, right? And difficult than it looks. This one smells like it might actually be not super complicated. And and it's kind of just more white collar transactional business. And so you might be able to get more of your traditional financial buyer in feeling a little more comfortable in a business like this. I think the nexus of value on this one is where did the leads go? If the leads go to individual appraisers, then you as the owner have very little value or very little leverage, right? But if this is primarily like a sales organization and the owners are the ones who receive all the leads and then they say, oh, I have a guy who's really good or I have a guy in South Carolina or, you know, in, you know, Florida and I'm going to send it to him, that becomes a lot more valuable because then the appraisers are just waiting to kind of receive their weekly allotment of leads or, you know, of, of customers. I think also you could buy this thing if you were, I wouldn't want to be like an electrical engineer from Des Moines and like try and buy this thing and move to Georgia. But if you're like a broker or a property manager or you, you know, are in the mix from a real estate perspective, I think you could, you could get up to speed on this and it's fairly formulaic, right? You don't have to have 30 years experience in commercial appraisal in order to do one of these things. But, but there is, there is a hurdle, a a compliance hurdle, like you said, Michael. Yeah. I think I would, if I was to get into this business and interested in it, first thing I do, I'd get the sim and I'd go find network to two or three people that are like the old saws in this business and be like, what don't I understand about this? This looks pretty good. Or how would I make this work? And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's one of the nice things about getting old. Like I know a bunch of 60 year old men and women, like I call them and be like, Hey, (laughs) tell me, tell me how not to be stupid about this. And you know, networking (laughs) to those is, is really a good thing. Cause I think they would tell you some stuff and be like, Oh, you need to think about it this way. Or, you know, there's there's a new law coming down that's going to affect it this way. I mean, that's besides the regulatory hurdle. There's also like, you know, do they change the banking rules yet again to make it more difficult on the appraisers? Like they could regulate your fees. Um, right now, I don't think that's mm-hmm. the case, but lots of bad things could happen if we do it in the name of consumer protection. Yep. Mm-hmm. All point. right. Let's wrap this one up and move on to our second deal. So, Michael, this is you. Sweet. Let me pull this one up. Okay. So this is a fun one. At least I found it fun. Hopefully everybody else does too. Um, it's on Buy Biz Sell. And um, so it came out a week or so ago. And it's actually a real estate staging company in Silicon Valley. So um, so basically what they do is when somebody wants to sell a home, the owner or the broker will pay this company to come in, uh, put together a plan of what fake furniture is going to look like. And then they deliver, install install furniture to make the home look like it's it's lived in and is really nice so you know you see those funny zillow listings where like somebody has like a full suit of armor on the wall or like a weird like you know dungeon in the basement like this is how you make it middle of the road to where it's more appealing to buyers um, because it's been shown just that a staged house will sell for more than a blank house so people invest in it and they pay a firm like this to come do that so 
Um, so these guys are in Santa Clara County, so heart of Silicon Valley. They're asking $350,000. Um, cash flows $221,000 on $350,000 or on $450,000 in revenue. So asking three fifty dollars for it, so about one and a half times revenue or one and a half times um, seller earnings. The business, um, $450,000, according to them. EBITDA is not applicable, so that's fine. Zero FF&E inventory is not applicable. We'll probably want to dig into that because these guys own furniture uh, and it was established <laughs> in 2015. So uh, this is a business uh, that according to broker during the fiscal year from April 20th to March 21st, the pandemic 12 months sales went up almost 3%, uh, but the seller discretionary earnings went up almost 35%. So that number we were just quoted in terms of them making 221,000 looks high compared to the average over time. Uh, as I said before, real estate staging is the most important factor in effective marketing of upscale homes in the Silicon Valley metro area. This established six-year-old profitable company is highly respected and sought after interior stager in Santa Clara County. Using their versatile and fashionable furnishings, the experienced designers and stagers serve the exacting requirements of the most prestigious real estate brokers. So if you're selling a $6 million home in Atherton, which is a, a fancy neighborhood there, uh, in Silicon Valley, you're willing to pay ten dollars to $15,000 to have one of these guys come in and make the home look like Martha Stewart just came through with a magic wand. Primarily serves Santa Clara County, San Jose metro area, and San Francisco Peninsula, so very much a local uh, business. Services include staging, design, and property preparation. Annual sales are in the $440,000 range with the uh, latest year's SDE seller's discretionary earnings of $221,000. Um, 2020, they were 448 and yada, 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 and about the same size for the previous year for 2019. They operate out of two 1,800 square foot warehouses, renting for $5,300 a month. And uh, the prospective buyer could continue that. And you sell to real estate agents who engage services directly or refer sellers to the business. Uh, they have over 36 active customers, about 500 in the database. The three largest customers represent 13, 12, and six and a half percent of sales, respectively. So they're trying to tell you there's not a lot of uh, customer concentration. They talk about staff and growth, yada, yada, yada. There's basically one full time owner manager, two part time employees, and two part time on demand contract movers. So this is a business clearly where the owner manager is out doing everything. You're a Jack or Jill of all trades. They have a bunch of assets sofas, chairs, tables, rugs, mattresses, pillows, uh, paintings, vases, et cetera. And the cost to replace all these at book uh, is $521,000. We haven't really talked about that, but it looks like that is included in the asking price of $349,000. Yeah, because they say, they say the cost to replace all these items would easily exceed the asking price for the business. Yeah, so you so buy the business. I think it is included. You buy the business, you get decor for life thrown in. All the throw pillows you could ever need, Bill. <laughs> Hope you like their taste. <laughs> By the way, I go to a coffee shop with my friends and- Literally, the owner of the coffee shop, I think he hates us because there are throw pillows everywhere. There's no place to sit. Like, it is ridiculous. There are more throw pillows in there than customers by an order of magnitude every time. Anyway, don't- He wants to keep it turning over, right? <laughs> I, throw pillows are the dumbest thing ever. Like, I have no idea why the university- We need to ban those when I'm king. All right. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, the broker and yada, yada, yada. So, this is the business. Um, looks priced really good. Um, what, what do we think? So, this is- have have you guys ever, if you're listening and you've ever paid for this, if you're selling a house, you probably had sticker shock when they told you how much it was going to cost to stage your house. I mean, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and, you, and I was floored. Yeah. And, but when we think about it, it's because it's a pain in the ass. 
Like you, you know, you gotta you gotta move all this furniture in. You gotta decorate it. You gotta it sits there. Yeah. You gotta move it out. You probably break it every so often when you move it. So I, I think this is what what this business basically is is you gotta be friends with realtors mm-hmm. uh, because my experience is that the realtor drives the leads here, right? You know, you hire a realtor to sell your house, and the realtor goes, "Look, man, you should really stage it. You know, we're gonna get more money. I'm gonna make more money in my fee, and this is the stager that I use." So I would be asking around on customer concentration, you know, maybe I don't have a lot of concentration in the people who cut me the checks, but maybe I do have a lot of concentration in where my leads come from. Um, or one is, firm, right? One firm. Yeah. Like like maybe it's one real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're about to sell our house and our real estate broker, our listing agent is including staging in their listing oh. fee, mm. you know, or in their commission if, if we want to, if we need to. So I hear you because my impression, Bill, is that like this would be several thousand dollars, you know, for a four hundred thousand dollar house or something like that. You're paying, you know, probably five thousand dollars or something. Yeah. So that that was my impression. But also like that, I, I don't think I don't think the listing agent is going to pay five thousand dollars because that'd be the majority of their commission. You know what I mean? Not in yeah. Silicon Valley, Unless though. These are like, I mean, they're getting six, yeah, these are well, Silicon yes. Valley. They're getting six percent totally on totally different. They're getting six percent on three million dollar tract homes in Palo Alto. Mills, your South Carolina is showing. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, yeah, exactly. I live in a really nice neighborhood. I promise it's not a shanty. You know. <laughs> uh, the the other thing that's interesting too is is written right here in the teaser. It says the cost to replace all these items, uh, you know, is more than the asking price. Price, but literally the next sentence says. Nothing is old or tired. The assets are regularly culled. So only the best is used in staging, which gives you the tip here that remember, you know, good housekeeping or better homes and gardens or whatever changes what's in style like every six months. And your house better look hip if you want to sell for millions of dollars. So what I wonder, I don't know this business, but I wonder if, you know, whether you actually want to own the sticks you know, the, the fabric and the wood furniture, or whether you want to like have there's some like rental model, you know, where you want to give it all back to a center every six months, you know, and turn it over and be more of a less than fixed cost model. Um, so I really want to understand, you know, I'm, I'm always the guy that says, look at the quality of that inventory. Uh, in this case, you know, it's the quality of the inventory, the equipment, if this were, you know, it's basically an equipment rental business. Yeah. And it's like, what's the useful life of this equipment, the furniture? Yeah, you have, you have, there's an unknown level of capex that has to happen here every year that at least in in the previous year it didn't show up in the cash flow but you know when the when the fads change like and everybody goes to hot pink in their house like it's just a matter of time yeah talk about buyer business fit like this is if i own this business a, a not a designer uh so assuming i would have a designer on staff that person would come to me every six months and be like we need to buy this thing and i go absolutely not like no the like that other couch is fine we've had it for four years right? <laughs> you need more throw pillows. <laughs> exactly uh and, and I, so i would not be a great owner for this because i would tire very quickly of of turning of not only turning over all my style but spending capex to well do it. It, it could explain somewhat why the business is going to trade at this kind of asking price like you need almost a unicorn of a person that wants this sort of hassle and this sort of activity, right? So you got to love doing design. You got to love schmoozing. Uh, you got to love corralling what who, what looks like a bunch of kind of difficult part-time employees, right? Um, you got to love doing all the other aspects of your business and you got to be okay when they call you and it's like, hey, uh, we have an open house in 45 minutes. Somebody spilled coffee on the couch. What are you doing about it? 
uh, and it's Sunday morning and you're at brunch. Like, like that is a, you deserve to get paid, but it's also like all of those things together, somebody wanting to do that, which none of us, I know you guys pretty well now, none of us on the podcast should do that job. That sounds like the worst, worst job ever for us. But there, you know, to find somebody that wants all of those things, that Venn diagram, like good luck. I think you got to be a designer, right? You just got to like love interior design. Yeah. Or you own, it. right? You own a like, I don't know why somebody who does like own, you own a furniture store in this County. You should totally try to do this yourself. Huh. Right. And maybe, maybe you buy it with some very unique deal structure, but if you already own the furniture and you have slow moving inventory and you just are, you know, sticking it into this kind of environment, I think that makes a lot of sense. Or like I've talked about my brother's business on the podcast before, if, if you own a moving business, this makes a lot of sense because to me, the hardest part is the, the, the designers, like, they know this stuff and you could probably rinse and repeat and reuse the same inventory, yeah. but getting it in and out of the house, like, like you said, I mean, it's like, Hey, we're listing the house, by the way, we kind of forgot to give you a heads up, but you know, the, the listing is going live in 48 hours and we need the stuff in or the house sold and we need that stuff out right away. That That's logistically very tricky. Hooey. But the price is right. I don't know. <laughs> The price is right. I, I, this it's a good it's a good add on maybe if you're elsewhere in the value chain if you're adjacent in the value yeah. chain to this, or if you love interior design, yeah, or if you're doing a uh, transaction adjacent real estate services roll up and are raising at five x revenue and just need to buy something. <laughs> where, do, where do I send the term sheets? <laughs> yeah, I mean the other thing is that affects this right is yeah the SDE is pretty good, but like. I think given, given what it costs to live in the Bay area now, like there's no, the buyer universe for this has to be somebody that lives in Santa Clara County already. Like you're, you're already established there. Cause there's just like the way housing prices are there. There's just no way like a normal person can come in, afford a house there and sign up for the risk associated with this job that, that gives off this kind of cash flow only. And I know, I know well, this is the most mention, crazy. Not to mention that, that SDE is going to get cut down. Yeah. Right. I mean, you're talking about probably, Sixty, seventy-five thousand dollars a year in debt service if you buy this business, yeah. you know. So then, all of a sudden, your SDEs whittled down even more. You definitely can't afford to live in that area and and be in the circles you would need to be in. Maybe the buyer of this has a really wealthy spouse, yeah. and this is their hobby. There yeah. you go, hobby business. Yep. Well, that was a good one. Um, so that brings to conclusion our real estate transaction adjacent services episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, and Michael, if you would give a shout out to our longest running sponsor, go yeah, ahead. Thanks again to Jake and the team at tinyacquisitions.com, the site where you can go and buy ready to run tiny businesses um, and get your feet wet with that either as your full-time job or a side hustle. So, and if you're a prospective or interested uh, supporter or advertiser of the podcast, uh, DM, email us. We are accepting uh, more advertisers. And uh, if you're a listener and you want to help us do better editing and all that kind of stuff and eventually break even, uh, please go to our podcast page where you can become a patron and uh, give us money every month. So we are very grateful to, uh, to accept any of that. Thank you, Michael. Uh, thank you to our sponsor, Tiny Acquisitions, uh, and to all of our patrons out there uh, on the interwebs. That's it for this episode of Acquisitions Anonymous. We will see you guys next week. Bye.